Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 3, 4 through 5. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle is written to encourage these believers in their faith, to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Up to this point, Paul has commended these believers for their faith, hope, and love, for their service and their heart for the lost. He's defended himself, his ministry, and his motives. And then, as we have seen in chapter 3, he's expressed his deep love and concern for them as they are suffering for their faith. Paul ended last time by encouraging them to stay faithful and focused in the midst of trial and tribulation. And he continues with this line of thought in today's passage. Let's look at that, verse 4. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Now remember, Paul and Silas were extremely concerned for the new Christians in Thessalonica, so much so that they couldn't endure it not knowing how they were doing in Thessalonica any longer. And so they sent Timothy to Thessalonica to establish and to encourage them and to remind them that affliction is on the calendar for every Christian. So trust God and endure because it has eternal value, it pleases God, and the best really is yet to come. Paul continued with this theme in verse 4 by telling us the fact, which is this, that we will suffer affliction. Yay. (laughs) And this isn't just true for the Thessalonian Christians, no. This is true for every Christian, and the Bible is very, very clear about that. As Paul said in Acts 14, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. As Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And then as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.12, Beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, as a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised by suffering and affliction. No, but instead, you should expect suffering and affliction as a Christian because it's a promise from God. And so, afflictions and tribulations should be anticipated in some form because of your faith in Christ. Note how Paul warned the Thessalonians of this truth when he was still there physically with them, right when they got saved. And he said, hey guys, you're going to suffer tribulation because of your faith in Christ. And guess what? They did. Paul adds, just as it happened and you know. So it had been made very clear to them and it happened just as Paul had told them and they knew. See, affliction is our reality. Oh yeah, they knew. We can learn a few things from Paul here. See, he didn't come up to these non-Christians for the very first time and say, hey, just surrender to Jesus and all your dreams will come true. (laughs) Become a Christian and Jesus will make you healthy and wealthy and it'll all be sunshine and roses from here on out now that you're a Christian. He didn't say that. He didn't do that even though many today present the gospel without ever talking about sin and its consequences, or about the fact that tribulation and more trouble is coming to you once you become a true believer. No. Instead of lying to them, Paul gave people the full truth, the 
the full good news of Christ, which begins with some very bad news, but ends with the best news in the history of the world. Even though becoming a Christian brings you more affliction in this life that's already filled with affliction. But again, worth it, anybody? Worth it? Worth it by a long shot? Come on, Christ and a life of pain is worth the forgiveness of all my sin that condemns me and the eternal glory that's coming to me. So Paul said, look, I've got some very good news for you, but it starts out with some bad news, and here it is. God is holy and heaven is perfect, and we are all sinners. And sin has devastating consequences. Death, talking about separation from God and eternity in hell, bad news. Sin banishes us from heaven and condemns all of us to eternal wrath. Why? Because eternity in hell is the just price for sin against holy God. Again, bad news. See, any sin against an infinite God requires an infinite sacrifice. Therefore, either man who is finite must pay the penalty for his sin for an infinite length of time in hell, or else someone who is infinite pays for sin once and for all in the believer's stead on the cross, which is exactly what Jesus, the infinite one, God the Son, did. Good news. And note that he's the only one who could do it as both God and man. He's the only one who could become our perfect sacrifice and substitute for sin. He's the only one who could truly rescue us from the deadly and eternal wages of our sin. And so he did it. What did he do? He, God the Son left heaven and he came here. He lived a perfect and sinless life that we could never live. He died on the cross in the place of the believing sinner and then he rose up from the dead three days later. In other words, the only one, the only one who could rescue undeserving sinners like us from eternity in hell, what did he do? He rescued us. He went to the cross to pay the infinite debt that we owe to God for our sin. On the cross, The sins of every believer in all of history were placed on the infinite Christ and God the Father punished Jesus for all that wretched sin on that cross so that in return, God can now shower you, the believer, with mercy, forgiveness, grace, and eternal life. And look, when you believe in true saving faith, repentant faith, You give Jesus all your sin which He took and paid for in full on the cross. And in return, He gives you His perfect righteousness that covers you and fits you for heaven. And that also ensures your safe arrival there in glory. That's good news. And that eternal good news means everything to undeserving sinners like us. Yes, It results in more trial and affliction here because of your faith in Christ. Yes, but so be it. Nothing compares to Christ and what he gives to us. Nothing. And so Paul warned the Thessalonian believers that we in Christ will suffer tribulation, but who really cares about more tribulation when you have Christ? And his forgiveness and his joy and peace and hope and purpose in heaven. Even so, here's the reality. We will suffer tribulation. Boom. That's a fact. The Greek word for affliction means to crush, to press, and to squeeze. The word's a strong term which doesn't refer to minor inconveniences, no, but it refers to real, true hardship. The word was often used to crush grapes or to make wine, in order to make wine. 
And so it describes intensely hard circumstances, severe suffering and anguish, and brutal distress, oppression, and affliction. That is our reality as Christians. Affliction, tribulation, hardship. The Apostle Peter goes into a bit of detail about trials and afflictions in 1 Peter 1, 6-9, if you want to go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. Look what it says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be. You've been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Now here in this passage, we learn a few important truths about our trials as Christians, or as Paul calls them, our afflictions. First, Peter says that our afflictions and trials are for a little while. How good is that? They're just for a little while. Good? All right. The question then is, what does Peter mean by a little while? This, that our afflictions and trials are for this life only. And for us in Christ, they will end when we die and go to heaven, which is indeed a little while compared to eternity. Now, I know we were hoping that Peter meant that our trials will end when we turn 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. No, they end when we die. And while from a human perspective, that might not seem like a little while, from God's perspective, from the true perspective, it is indeed a little while. Hey, life is short. It really is, right? Time flies by, and when this short life is over for us in Christ, our trials will come to an end, and that's good to remember. This is all about perspective here, and we must never lose our perspective. As Thomas Watson said, affliction may be lasting, but it's not everlasting. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, the Apostle Paul said that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, Paul knew that our present afflictions and trials are like a a feather compared to the eternal weight of what we will soon be experiencing in glory. And while that truth might be easy to say, but harder to live out, it's still the truth. And this life really is like a, a, a blip on the screen of eternity. Please never, ever forget that. And, and look, someday soon. All these trials and all these tribulations will end for us in Christ. And good news, there are no trials, no troubles, no pains, no weeping in heaven. Note also that our trials and tribulations are needed. If need be, Peter says, and look, they need be. They are indeed necessary. See, God doesn't bring or allow these trials to happen for us for no good reason. No, but rather they are necessary for our eternal good. Vance Abner said, the grace, the groans, and the glory are all part of the eternal purpose. Where there is no groaning, there is no growing now, nor glory to come. And that's absolutely right. See, trials are necessary in this Christian life because trials drive us to God. And those who are put through the fire are the ones who are then refined pliable, humble, and the most useful for the glory of God. Hey, shouldn't the true Christian's prayer be something like this? Lord, 
I love you and I want to glorify you. So whatever it takes, Lord, do your work in me. Shouldn't that be our prayer? Whatever it takes to to purify my heart, Lord, do your work in me. Whatever it takes, Lord, to build my faith, do your work in me. Whatever it takes to make my life like Jesus more and more and more, Lord, do your work in me. Whatever it takes to make me holy and pure and useful and God-pleasing, Lord, please do it, Lord. Whatever it takes. And you know what God says? Okay. Trials. Affliction. Tribulation. Because that's what it takes. As one said, there are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now that I've been afflicted, I keep thy word. And it was trials that kept him from going astray. They are necessary. Psalm 119.71 says, It's good for me that I was afflicted. Really? Why? That I may learn Thy statutes. That's right. Sometimes God gives affliction to purge out corruption. Sometimes suffering is the medicine to purge out the disease of our soul. Sometimes affliction is a means that God uses to purge out our sloth, our pride, and our sinful love of the world. Sometimes God gives us more affliction that we may have less sin. They are necessary. One said, grace thrives most in the iron furnace. Hardships in God's people eats out the venom of sin. The more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. The more we face various trials, the more our faith shines. That's right. And so we see that trials are necessary for those of us who love and who want to please God with this fast and fading life. Peter goes on and says that our trials and tribulations test or prove our faith, verse 7. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. And so we find that trials and tribulations test us to prove that our faith is the real deal, genuine. The word for genuineness in the Greek is dokimos, and it means to test something in order to prove that it will not fail. So Peter likens our trials to the testing of gold. You know that it takes four tons of gold ore to produce one ounce of pure gold? During the refining process, the gold ore is heated in a giant furnace until it liquefies. And then the dross or the waste material is skimmed off, leaving only pure gold at the bottom. Well, this is what God intends through our trials. See, he puts us in the furnace to burn off the greed, the impatience, the unkindness, the anger. The bitterness, the the hatred, the lust, the lying, the hypocrisy, the selfishness, and so on. And this is what we need the most. We need refining. Anybody? Is it just me? (laughs) We need refining. We need sin more to be burned away. Thus the trials that test us and try us for our own good. See, the refiner has purpose in all these things. All these trials and all these afflictions are eternal Good. One said it like this. Stars shine brightest in the darkest night. Torches are better for beating. Grapes come not to the proof till they come to the press. Spices smell sweetest when pounded. Young trees root the faster for shaking. Vines are the better for bleeding. Gold looks brighter for scouring. And juniper smells sweeter in the fire. For us. Christians shine brightest and grow most holy through our trials and through our afflictions. See, our trials, they show us where we're at. 
they drive us into deeper communion with our good God. For the fakers, trials drive them away. But for the true, they drive us to Him, see? Refining is good. Peter goes on and says that for us in Christ, enduring trials and tribulations gives praise to God. And that's the goal, right? Praising God. Though it's tested by fire, maybe to praise, honor, and glorify uh, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. See, we don't see Jesus yet face to face, but praise the Lord, someday soon we will. And Peter's reminding these believers and us that when we look to the Lord in our trials, when we honor the Lord in the midst of our tribulations, when we point others to Him in our hardship, when we remain faithful in our trials and draw closer to Him through those trials, look, He is honored and He is glorified. And again, that's the goal. See, life is about giving glory, honor, and praise to the Lord. Nothing's more important and nothing's more valuable than that. It's not about ease here. It's about Him. It's not about comfort here. It's about Him. It's not about luxury here. It's about Him. And like it or not, suffering's a great means of driving us forward in our quest to give glory and honor and praise to God. Peter goes on and says that as Christians, we can greatly rejoice in our trials and tribulations. What? We can greatly rejoice in our trials and tribulations. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word for greatly rejoice speaks of someone who is being so filled up that they feel like skipping around. We don't want to see that, right? It depicts jumping and shouting for joy that can't be contained. That's us, suffering Christians. How's that possible in the midst of trial and tribulation? Because we know the rest of the story, right? We know the end. We know what lies ahead. And what lies ahead for us in Christ makes all of our trials and tribulations well worth it every single bit. So here's the full situation for us plainly stated. In the world, we in Christ are strangers and pilgrims. The world doesn't and cannot understand us, not really. We constantly swim upstream against a godless culture. We are square pegs and round holes. We're not home yet. But that's okay because we've come to know Christ Jesus and He makes all the difference. Right now, we love Him. Right now, we trust Him. Right now, we rejoice in Him. One day, we will see Him face to face. One day, we will receive the goal of our faith. One day, our salvation will be complete. And that's not enough to make it easy, but that's more than enough to satisfy us so that we can rejoice until we arrive there safely home. See, You know that in Philippians, Paul says that for us in Christ, trials and tribulations are actually a gift from God, just as much as salvation is. That's what what it says. And that's true because of what those trials and because of what those tribulations produce in us. William Hendrickson says that Suffering in Christ is a gracious gift that produces many blessings. That's another way to understand it, right? One, it brings Christ nearer to the soul of the Christian. Two, it brings assurance of salvation when you suffer and endure for Christ. Three, it'll be rewarded in the hereafter. Four, it's often a means of winning unbelievers for Christ and of encouraging fellow believers. And five, by means of all these avenues, it leads to the frustration of Satan, love that, as we see in the book of Acts, and the glorification of God 
which is why we were created. So yeah, we will suffer tribulation. It's been appointed to all of us in Christ. And like the Thessalonians, our call isn't to be shaken by them. No, our call is to trust God, to be faithful, and to glorify Him in the midst of it. And good news, soon we will all be, we in Christ, we will all be in glory, and it's well worth every bit of it. So, we will suffer tribulation, and as Paul was concerned for these new believers in Thessalonica, look, he sent Timothy to them so that he could know about their faith. That's the one truth. This is the second time that Paul has said this in five verses, and it shows us his deep concern for them as he went away from them. Remember, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, they first came to Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey, and many souls were saved. They then went to Berea, and then they went to Athens. Paul was actually alone in Athens for a while, but then Silvanus and Timothy joined him. And here we find that while they were there, Paul and Silvanus sent Timothy back to Thessalonica because they could no longer endure not knowing how they were doing in the faith. So off Timothy went. Not long after that, Paul went to Corinth, and that's when Timothy returned from Thessalonica with the very good news that the Christians in Thessalonica were doing well, that they were enduring, that they were growing, and they were glorifying the Lord, that they were faithful in the midst of all their trials and tribulations. Yes, what a relief, right? They were faithful. They were strong. They were pressing on. They weren't shaken. What a relief. Now look, these Christians in Thessalonica were saved by faith in Christ alone. They then lived out that faith in Christ with faithful living for the glory of God. Well, Paul sent Timothy to find out how that faith was doing, about their faith. In other words, were they true to the faith? Were they strong in the faith? Were they steadfast in the faith? Were they enduring and overcoming in the faith in the midst of all their tribulations instead of being shaken Wagging, falling, and withering. Well, good news. Great news. They were faithful through it all. Their faith was strong. How's that possible? By believing God and by believing what God says in His Word. And then, by living according to that Word. Focused, intent, and Christ-centered. God said it. I believe it. And I trust Him. So here's the question. Do you really trust Him? Do you really Trust Him, even when the trials and afflictions come. Now look, if you can trust Him with your eternal soul, don't you think you should trust Him with the rest? The Thessalonians trusted Him with the rest. Lord, help us to be like them. Question, what was Paul concerned about that made him send Timothy to the Thessalonians? Two things, two fears. First, Paul feared that the tempter had tempted them. Who's the tempter? Satan is the tempter. Satan means adversary. That's exactly who he is. He's the constant enemy of God and man. He's also called the devil, which means slanderer, backbiter, and false accuser, which also is what he is constantly doing as he slanders God to man and man to God. But who is he exactly? We looked at this a couple weeks ago. He's a fallen angel. Remember, God created myriads and myriads of angels and Satan was one of those angels. But then Satan sinned against God. He led a rebellion of other angels, a third of them who have become demons. 
His fall from heaven is symbolically described in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and then in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 18. While these two passages are referring specifically to the kings of Babylon and Tyre, most believe that they are referencing the spiritual power behind those kings, Satan. Ezekiel 28 describes Satan as an exceedingly beautiful angel. In fact, Satan was likely the highest of all angels, but he wasn't content in his position. Look what Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 says. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly of the recesses of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see what happened? He fell, Satan fell because of pride. He desired to be God, not to be a servant of God. So he got the big head, he turned against God, he led a rebellion of the third of the angels who are now demons, and he's now God and God's people's enemy and adversary. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So the devil wants to devour you, the devil wants to destroy you, he wants to hurt you, he wants to harm you, he wants to render you ineffective, and how will he do that? Well, Paul tells us that one of the ways that he will do that is by tempting us. The tempter. I fear that the tempter has tempted you. It's very interesting. Because the word for test and the word for tempt are the same Greek word. That said, context is very important. See, while God will test us to refine us and and drive us closer to him, The devil, on the other hand, he will tempt us into sin and away from God. So, same word, vastly different outcomes. God will test us for our eternal good. Satan will tempt us for our eternal bad. This word's in the present tense, which indicates that temptation is his continual evil activity. It pictures the tempter as persistently engaged in an effort to destroy the faith of the Thessalonians along with every other believer through temptation, and he never gives up his sinister efforts. So he tries to invade your mind, your bedroom, your quiet time, your prayer time. He lies to you. He tells you that sin isn't that bad, that that compromise is fine, that fellowship and corporate worship isn't all that important. He tries to convince you that you can play with fire and not get burned. That you can pet the lion and it won't bite you. That you can have a cobra as a pet and it won't kill you. That you can coddle your sin, toy with it, keep it, pet it, and it won't hurt you or your spouse or your children or those around you. So he tempts. He, he dangles the bait. He, he attaches that, that lure that attracts so he can then hook you and reel you in. That's how he works. What does he do to tempt us? What does he use? 1 John 2.16 says this, For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And these three things are what Satan uses to tempt us into sin. This is his pattern. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. For example, these three characteristics parallel the way Satan tempted Eve. She saw that the forbidden fruit was good for food, which was an appeal to the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, 
Thus the appeal to the lust of the eyes. And then she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. This appealed to the boastful pride of life. That's his pattern because it works. It's also the pattern that Satan used to tempt Jesus. Remember, Satan urged Jesus to turn stones into bread, the lust of the flesh. He showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, offering to give them to him, the lust of the eyes. And then he encouraged Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, which would have been a source of sinful pride. Again, this is how Satan works, so take heed to yourself. Let's briefly look at these three things, just to warn you. First, lust of the flesh. Lust speaks of strong desires, longings, or passionate cravings for what? Well, for the flesh, which speaks of our sinful flesh, our fallen natures, the things that oppose the Lord, forbidden things, evil things, things that hurt and harm our souls. See, as Christians, we are no longer in the flesh, but we are now in Christ, praise the Lord. That said, while we are no longer in the flesh, we still have to battle against the flesh. And so that's what we do. We battle it or else we, or else we had better be battling it. Now, the lust of the flesh includes any strong desire or inclination of our fallen nature, including sexual sin, but also all activity that stems from the self-seeking godless nature that we were born with. One said it like this. It's that one small taste that leads to being controlled by this lust, that leads to an idol, that leads to even ordinary pleasures being destroyed, that leads to an openness to betray even my closest friend for this idol, whatever it happens to be. That's right. Take heed. Satan will do his best to lure you into these appetites that will draw you away from God and from the God-pleasing, joy-filled Christian life. Second is the lust of the eyes. Speaking of lusts that are triggered by sight, triggered by what a person sees, lusts that are aroused by that which enters through the eye gate, the seductive lure of things. Hey, guard your eyes because great sin can enter through the eyes. I see it. I want it. I'm going to take it. Remember the story of Achan? Achan ended up Achan because of his sin. That's how I remember that. In Joshua 7, Achan took something that he shouldn't have taken and he got caught. Achan owned up to it and said, When I saw among the spoil, see that? A beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Well, Achan paid dearly because he gave in to the lust of the eyes. The the world sees and takes, but Christians are called to battle against these lusts because we love the Lord. Lust of the eyes is very seductive, isn't it? Satan knows that. Satan knows that. I, I see they have a big house. I want a big house. I see they have a nice car. I want a nice car. But what about loving God and being content with what he's blessed us with? That doesn't mean you can't uh, want nice things, but come on, there's a, there's a, there's a line here. Ultimate examples of this are seen in the media, TV, billboards, the internet, the lust of the world that, that are triggered by sight uh, are very powerful if we're not on guard. Let me ask you, what does what you look at and how you look at it reveal about who you are and what you love? Take heed. Satan has put many luring things in front of your eyes to draw you away from God and into sin, and he'll keep doing it. Take heed. Third, the pride of life. Talking about sinful pride that basically speaks of glorifying and exalting yourself over God. Me, me, me. 
It's all about me. I deserve. I need. I, I, I. And pretty soon, you're doing what you want and what you desire rather than what God wants and what God desires from you. Hey, Satan will lie to you. Don't believe the lies. No, you listen to God. See, here's a question. What do you desire? What do you look at? How do you look at it? Where do you find your security? Do you love things that are hurting your soul? Do you have an appetite for things that are destroying you? Satan is the tempter and he's good at what he does. Take heed. Samson is a very good, bad example for us here. You know the story, right? You can turn there, uh, Judges 16. I'm going to read that in just a second. You know the story, right? Samson, a man who'd been set apart by God from his birth. A man who was supposed to glorify God and show others what a God-fearing man was like. Samson was nothing of the sort. See, he let the tempter tempt him. And we can learn a lot from his bad example today. And we can learn uh, a couple of ways that the tempter works as we look at that. First, we learn that sin and temptation disguises itself. Or you can say it like this, Satan disguises sin. In Judges 16.1, I'm not going to read that, I'm just going to talk about that. We learn that Samson spends the night with a prostitute. Man of God right there, right? Then later we learn that he falls in love with another wonderful woman. Named Delilah. She was anything but a woman of God. And what we discover is that Samson had a weakness that was disguised in great beauty. And his weakness brought him to fall into sin. And it brought about his ultimate downfall. What was that weakness? The opposite sex. And it led Samson down a road of lust, of immorality, of compromise, of great dishonor to God. And yes, of terrible sin. See, sin disguises itself so it can lure us down a dead end road that leads directly away from the Lord. Satan's the father of lies. He's he's very good at wrapping sin up into a nice looking package that looks harmless and that looks very appealing to us, but is always meant to bring us down and to bring God down. A father was giving his son a bath on a cold evening. And as the boy was taken out of the water, he began to shiver with cold and he cried, Oi, Papa, oi! Very quickly, his father covered him up with a towel, dried him off and put warm clothes on him. And as the boy warmed up, he cried, Ah, Papa, ah. Son, his father said thoughtfully, you want to know the difference between being cold after a bath and sin? The boy nodded his head. The difference is this, said the man. When you jump out of the bath into the cold air, you yell, Oi, and then you say, Ah. But when you commit a sin, you first say, Ah. And then you yell, Oi. He's right. This reality applies to any and every sin that we commit. It's never worth it. It's never, ever worth it. To King David, Bathsheba looked very appealing, but after he committed adultery with her and went down the terrible path that he went down, he realized the terrible harm that sin can bring because the consequences of that sin were tragic indeed. And it started with just a look. Well, it started in his heart first. To Judas who betrayed Christ, the money he was paid to turn against the Lord felt good in his greedy little fingers. But after he betrayed Christ, the money didn't mean a whole lot to him, did it? See, sin disguises itself into something that looks very good and appealing and harmless to us. But please don't be fooled by the disguise. Satan loves baiting that hook with something appealing until he's reeling you in and messing up your life. Alcohol may look very appealing. Adultery may seem fun and pleasing. 
Gossip may seem harmless. Lust may not seem to be that bad. Pornography may seem fairly harmless at first. It's not hurting anyone except you and, of course, those around you. Unforgiveness may seem fairly harmless. Any sin that we commit might not seem that bad. But after it's ruined your life, after it's ruined your relationship with others, after it's ruined your relationship with God, we realize how bad sin really is. Don't be fooled by the disguise. The story continues in Judges 16.6. Judges 16.6. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you have... You may be bound to afflict you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound them him with them. Now men were lying in wait, standing with her in the room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Did he learn his lesson? Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, look, you've mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me with what you may be bound. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore, Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room. But he broke them off his arms like a thread. Delilah said to Samson, until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into a web of a loom. So they wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Then she said to him, come on, man, learn your lesson. How can you say I love you when your heart's not with me? You've mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him that his soul was vexed to death. That he told her all his heart and said to her, no razor has ever come upon my head. For I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Can you believe Samson let that happen to him? What a fool. What a fool. Hey, we're a lot like him. This is how sin and temptation works. This is how the tempter works. It, It disguises himself and then it nags. Anybody? Samson. Tell me the secret of your great strength. Samson, you lied to me. Come on. Tell me how you can be uh, tied up. Samson, you made a fool of me and you lied again. Tell me how you can be bound. Samson, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? What's the secret of your great strength? Samson, Samson, Samson. And then verse 16, she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him until his soul was vexed to death. That's how sin and temptation works. It nags until we do something about it. Until we either give in or flee from it. And here, Samson had two choices that he could have made. First, he could have given in to the nagging and sinned against God and lost everything, which he did. Or second, he could have left. He could have fled. See, he didn't have to allow himself to be put into that kind of situation. He could have left. He could have fled like Joseph did when a woman chased after him. He could have walked away at any time, but he didn't. And inevitably, he gave in to the constant nagging. Okay, fine, I'm tired of the battle. (laughs) Sin and temptation is like that. It nags until you give in or run. See, it never gives up. 
It never gives in. It never quits. Satan always is looking for other ways to tempt you, to capture you, and to reel you in. And the question is, will you give in to the nagging like Samson did, or will you flee like Samson could have and should have? Look, temptation will always be there. And we all know that. It's never going away in this life. But too many times, we make it so easy. Samson should have run from Delilah without looking back, but he kept going back to her. His fall, I mean, didn't we see it coming? His fall was inevitable. How many times do we invite Satan to nag us so that we fall into sin? We almost ask him to bring it on by the positions that we put ourselves in and by the ways that we set ourselves up for a fall. It's kind of like the alcoholic who goes to the bar and says he won't drink. Right. Or the person who struggles with lust and goes to the bikini contest. Wake up! Fool. Or the person who struggles with being judgmental. Or the person who struggles with pride or anger or unforgiveness or hypocrisy or, or greed or worldliness or gossip or the neglect of the things of God. The neglect of your husband or your wife or your children or envy or slander or cheating or lying or any other kind of sin. And they refuse to flee from it. They refuse to run from the things that fuel that sin. Wake up! The nagging of sin is hard enough. But to set ourselves up for it is a sure way to set ourselves up for a massive fall. Don't be like Samson. No, run. Run to God. Run to those things that will build you up and make you strong like prayer and the Word and other Christians and the things of God. The third way that temptation and sin works is that sin chips away at us a little bit at a time. Look at Samson. He starts out by telling Delilah that tying his hands in a special way will make his strength disappear. Later on, he moves to his hair. He says, if you weave it in a special way, it'll all become weak. And then finally, he says, if you cut it off, all my strength will leave me. And there, we see a progression. A little bit at a time, Samson begins to give in. From his hands to his hair, And then he gives it all away. And that's how sin and temptation works on us. It chips away at us a little bit at a time. A little here and a little there. A little compromise here and a little compromise there. We give in here a little bit. We give in there a little bit. And pretty soon, we find ourselves in a place we never thought we would be. Just like Samson. And if we're not alert, if we're not growing and praying and spiritually on track with the Lord, Satan will begin to chip away at us and maybe he's doing it right now in your life. It starts out small and it grows. C.S. Lewis says that it doesn't matter how small the sins are provided that their overall effect is to edge the person away from the light of Christ and out into nothing. Murder is no better than lies if lying does the trick. And any little sin that we are harboring in our lives will do the trick. Be Alert, please. Philip Henry says that sins are like circles in the water when a stone is thrown into it. One produces another. When anger was in Cain's heart, murder was not far off. Thomas Manton said it's Satan's custom by small sins to draw us into greater. As the little sticks set the great ones on fire and the wisp of straw kindles a block of wood. He's absolutely right. See, Satan chips away at us bit by bit by bit. Please understand that. Don't read your Bible today. It's chipping away. Don't pray today. He's chipping away. Don't, don't go to church today. 
Take a little break. He's chipping away. Giving a little today. Don't, don't hate that sin you committed. You've, you've done good for a while. One little compromise isn't going to hurt you. Don't try to grow in your faith or your spiritual walk today. Skate by today. You'll be fine. A little here, a little there, and pretty soon Satan has us right where he wants us. And it all starts with some very small compromises, very small ones. Take heed. Beware. Satan is relentless. Don't we know it? Satan is relentless, and you need to be more relentless in your pursuit of the God-pleasing life. Hey, nothing is more valuable than your relationship with God, and you are called to protect it, to treasure it, to guard it, and to keep it. And the question is, are you? Are you really? We know what happened, right? Samson gave in, he was caught, he had his eyes gouged out, and then he was made a slave of his enemies. The good news is that Samson ended up finally trusting God and honoring him at the very end of his life. Praise the Lord for that. But oh, what regret. May we learn from him today. Don't let the tempter tempt you with anything. Second, Paul feared that their labor might be in vain. Paul knew full well that the tempter had been very busy in Thessalonica. He's very busy everywhere. Paul's fear here was that the tempter was winning, that the Thessalonians were giving in to the tempter, that they had been shaken by their afflictions, that they were wavering and were therefore showing that they weren't the real deal, perhaps. See, trials and temptations reveal the truth to us, and Paul was fearful that the trials and the temptations and the afflictions of the Thessalonians might prove that his efforts were useless, empty, void, come to nothing. There's real fear here, a fear that many pastors fear, because the enemy is fierce and human nature is very fickle. Well, good news. The Thessalonians proved that Paul's labor was not in vain. No. They were standing still. They, they were fighting still. They were still enduring. They were still glorifying God. And they were still assaulting Satan. They were indeed the real deal. And their battle against the tempter proved that truth. Yes. Praise the Lord for that. And I want to be like them. Lord, help us to stand strong. Lord, help us to endure tribulation with our eyes fixed on the Lord. Lord, help us to, to believe God's Word and to not give in to the tempter, not ever, and to make it our aim to glorify Christ with the precious time that we have left because soon we will be home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to learn from the Thessalonians and help us to not let the tempter tempt us. I pray that this is something that all of us ponder that we all take to heart, that we heed this good warning for all of us today, and that we would examine ourselves right now. May we repent where we have failed. May we give sin to you right now, if we need to. And Lord, I pray that you would renew us and revive us in our conviction to glorify you with the precious time we have left. May we encourage one another with your truth. May we not let the tempter tempt us here. Speak to our hearts now. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.